0: Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 9. Polanski and Dr. Hudson Move Against Dr. Richards. Ben had asked Barbara to marry him. After all the months since Joe's death, she finally agreed. She walked over to the coffee table in front of the sulfur. She set her empty glass on the table and filled it with the amber-colored scotch. She lifted the glass to her lips and drank the liquor quickly as Ben watched the scene from the sulfur. Barb, I wish you'd cut down on that scotch. I'm all right, Ben. I'm all right. She walked over to Ben with a slushy smile on her face and sat down on the sofa. Her blonde hair was a twisted mass, and the darker roots were becoming more exposed every day. There were lines of frustration and dark circles around her bloodshot eyes. Ben felt a deep responsibility to her and to Joe. They already had the rings and the license for the ceremony, but had withheld the announcement from the children. In fact, Barbara kept delaying the ceremony. Barb, he said slowly, we've got to decide either we get married or we don't. We I can't live in limbo. I don't know. If you don't know, then why did you accept my proposal? Asked Ben. It was oh oh, let's go and get it over with. I'm, I'm ready, Ben. Okay, call the Reverend. Why don't we just go down town hall? I don't like the Reverend. I didn't like what he did at Joe's funeral. The way that he just sort of fluffed it off. Maybe he could bring this sinking woman back to a state of mind she once possessed. I'll check with the Reverend then, Barb. Why don't you change? I'm not going to change, she cried and straightened her wrinkled pink dress. I'm just fine. Yeah, you're just fine, mumbled Ben as he headed for the kitchen. He grabbed the telephone and dialed the number of the parsonage. As he walked out of the sliding glass doorway, he looked into the desert night. The telephone rang many times as he waited. Hello, Reverend. This is Ben Simpson. Hmm. Oh, yes. Reverend, we're ready for that marriage ceremony. Can we come over there tonight, or shall we wait for a more convenient time? Well, I'd be glad to perform the ceremony tonight, Ben. Yes. Hmm. Good, good. When can we come over? Very good, Reverend. We'll be right over. Thank you. Goodbye, said Ben as he walked into the living room. Barbara had gulped another scotch and set it on the glass table. It's all set, he said gleefully, ignoring her antics. I'm ready. All ready. Let's go, she said as she put his arm around her and they left for the church. The reverend stood with an older member of the congregation in front of the church as they arrived. Ben had looped the polka dot tie around the collar of his white shirt as they walked arm in arm toward the altar. "'Hello, Reverend,' said Barbara. "'Hello, Mrs. Dorothy, Mrs. Kelty. Dorothy?' The bulging woman nodded her lips, and she reluctantly returned the greeting. Mrs. Kelty had liked Joe very much since he was a little boy, and Barbara could see she did not approve of the pending marriage.' It was only through the reverend's pathetic insistence that she came to the church at all. She stared at Barbara with a wicked vengeance. Barbara turned away from her frightening stare and and looked around the familiar church setting. She visualized the many times she had come to church with Joe. She could see him carrying Phyllis as a baby as she was baptized. The images of all her children now circulated in her mind as the reverend prepared to start the ceremony. Her throat tightened as she turned to her left. To the pew where the family had always sat, Barbara," said the Reverend as he broke her concentration. "We're ready to uh, we're ready to hmm, start the service. If you will join hands." Barbara just kept looking around the church as the Reverend went through the words and the rituals of marriage. They were like words in an eerie dream that she hoped would come to an end, and Joe would run up the aisle. And will you, Benjamin, have this woman, Barbara, to be your lawfully wedded wife? To love and to cherish, and to honor and obey, for richer, for poorer, till death do you part? I will. And will you, Barbara, have this man, for your lawfully wedded husband, to love and to cherish, to honor and obey, for richer, for poorer, till death do you part? She cleared her throat and answered, I will, she said as Mrs. Kelty cringed. As the ceremony continued, tears came to Barbara's eyes. "'I now pronounce you man and wife. "'What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. "'You may kiss the bride.' "'Ben looked into the teary eyes of his new wife. "'She quickly pecked him on the lips and turned to the reverend. "'Then she backed away from this man that she now called her husband. "'The reverend looked at Barbara with an uneasy perception. "'Thank you, reverend. "'I know that you went out of your way tonight, and Mrs. Kelty, thank you, too.' "'said Ben as he took out his clean handkerchief "'and wiped Barbara's mournful eyes. "'I think we should be going along, "'maybe for some coffee and something to eat. "'You're both welcome to join us.' "'I don't think so,' said Mrs. Kelty "'as she firmly stomped out of the church. "'This upset Barbara even more, and she hung on to Ben. "'The Reverend not exactly the master of time, "'and, hmm, congratulations.' "'Yeah, thanks, Reverend. "'I think we'll be going.' He led Barbara to the rear of the church. She kept reverting back to her past. Her thoughts were with Joe Polanski, the dark-haired man with the sparkling blue eyes. Preparations for the time flight had begun early in the morning. In the main complex, each console buzzed with activity as the techs monitored every bit of the larger puzzle. Lights on the console flashed and noises of a wide variety echoed around the chamber. Each of the tech monitors was tied in directly to this master control behind the glass panel and coordinated over the public address system by the ominous voice of Dr. Richards. Mark, 6 hours and 20 minutes. All systems are positive for a time travel sequence. Computer readout, 97% power pulse. Pressure turn is equal to minus 45 on a 10% overlap. Number 20 reports all fields are stable and operational. This is Hudson Control at minus 6 hours and 22 minutes and 30 seconds. Richards turned away from the microphone and looked at Dr. Hudson. John, are those new field reports accurate? Hudson was standing in front of the master monitors that extended to the rear of the small room. Frampton and another assistant, Nancy Bruce, were at the consoles in the middle of the room. Miss Bruce, have you checked those figures? Brown-haired woman activated a red digital readout on a monitor. All fields are stable, and they're going into the seventh sequence. Excellent, responded Richards. Field density of those proportions at this point are very encouraging. You're correct, Paul. Everything is going better than scheduled, said Hudson as he walked to the back of the room. He closely followed the readouts on the wallboards next to the glass panel. Unbeknownst to Richards, Frampton or Nancy Bruce... He pulled one of the plastic knobs off its metal dial. Quickly, he removed a hypodermic needle filled with a nebulous purple substance from his coat pocket. In a matter of seconds, he injected the liquid into the bottom of the control knob. Immediately, the precise meters on Richard's board began to flutter uncontrollably. The strange readings seemed to affect Richard's as if they were a part of his own body. What is this? asked Richard's with a look of astonishment. John! John! He stared at the fluctuating meter. Yes, Paul. had put the plastic knob back into its metal support. He walked innocently toward the perturbed Richards. Look, look at this reading. Shall we hold the count? No, definitely not, shouted Richards as he walked over to a communications console next to Nancy Bruce. He pushed a button that connected him to an alternative monitoring device on the floor. Fourteen, this is Richards. Doctor, we were just about to call you. can't seem to straighten up this disorientation. till we go below? No. This is too important. I will personally take care of it. Good, John. You call me when you get down there, Ordered Richards. Probably just an improper reading. In a few minutes, Hudson emerged from an opening in the lower level. He checked his every step as he walked into the reddish glow of the cramped room. He moved across the floor. To a series of numbered panels. Each panel was the junction between the consoles above and the corresponding systems in the tube. The paneled ceiling was suspended from the floor of the complex and supported by thick round pillars. Hudson looked upward at the red-hued panels. He didn't have to search for the panel as he knew every part of the complex in great detail. Orientation, c 6, number 14. He stopped and picked up a telephone from one of the black pillars. Paul, I have to disconnect the power in 14 for a few minutes. You better let him know it's happening. I don't want an override while I've got my hands in those circuits. Will do. Check back when you have identified the malfunction. Right, said Hudson as he hung up the receiver. He turned and then scurried toward the darkened portion of the lower level. As he neared the far wall near the tube itself, he disappeared into a tiny alcove. Breathing heavily, he removed a key from his pocket and quickly opened its door. A few seconds later, he pushed out a green glowing dome and set it on a larger base. The dome appeared blue in the red light. He lifted the device to the top of a movable aluminum ladder came to a stop under panel 14. As he set the device back on the floor, he climbed up the ladder and pushed open the panel. He peeked over the top and slid the panel onto one of its adjacent panels. Then he hurried down the ladder and, and grasped the device. Slowly and strenuously, he plugged his way up the metal stairs, breathing heavily. He hoisted the device onto a side panel and slid it too onto another panel. It was a geosynchronating device that would allow him to divert the flight wherever he wanted it on Earth. There were five connector points in the back of the device, and he squinted as he plugged it into the appropriate openings. If all went to plan, the consoles above would reflect Richard's overall instructions, while the actual movement in the tube would be directed to the President's retreat at Camp David. What's the problem? Hudson moved quickly. I'm going to have to delay the flight if the problem isn't resolved soon. I've just reconnected the wire, Paul. There's nothing wrong down here. It must be upstairs. I will tell them upstairs. Richards walked over to the telephone with his back still toward the panel. Hudson's hand shook as he snapped the geosynchronator into place. It's all set here paul said the elder hudson i'm getting too old for this aren't we all smiled richards who was relieved that the actual systems were now functioning properly we mustn't waste any more time paul let's get upstairs and fix that meter said hudson as the two men headed for the field hudson looked at his watch he had accomplished the feat in less than 20 minutes polanski had been instructed to rise at 6 a.m that morning and ordered not to have any food. His stomach growled under the white Tex uniform as he waited in the room behind the Master Control. He would be fitted into a bulky suit and ready for the flight, and as he waited for Dr. Hudson and Richards, he grew nervous. The door to Master Control opened abruptly and Richards motioned Hudson into the room. Richards beamed with excitement as he introduced Hudson to Polanski. "'Ah, Mr. Polanski, I would like to introduce you to the director, Project Hudson, the project that bears his name, Dr. John Hudson.' "'How do you do, Mr. Polanski?' He shook Polanski's hand. "'I want to congratulate you for volunteering on this mission today.' "'Thank you, Doctor. I'm proud to do my part, for the greater glory.' Hudson turned to Richards to acknowledge the effect of Richards' drug on Polanski. Richards nodded slowly and said, "'Excellent, excellent!' Now I will leave you with Dr. Hudson, who will fill you in on the details. He will be your alter ego from this moment until you return from your trip. I will be out front. If you have any questions, feel free to ask. Hudson watched the door close, and then he looked directly into Polinsky's eyes. He handed him a typewritten message. Open this up. It's very important. Polinsky looked at the white envelope. It had large, typewritten letters on it the eyes of the President of the United States only. Polanski opened the envelope and unfolded the sheet of paper inside. Mr. President, the following is an incomplete but essential list of participants still active in Project Hudson. General Thomas J. McNally, CIA Chief Monty, FBI Director Peabody. Subordinates are unknown to me. Mr. Polanski has all other relevant information. Please listen to him, for Dr. Richards is insane and continuing Project Hudson for his own designs. Sign, Dr. John Hudson. Please keep this paper on your person. If anything happens to you, it still will be possible that he gets the message. It's hard for me to believe that they could support and maintain this project right under his nose. Not really. As I told you before, the President put implicit trust in these men because he believes they're his friends. He believes the people involved in starting the project have been punished. I will hold on to this note until you are dressed, said Hudson as he took the note and crossed the room. He picked up an article of clothing that looked like a Navy Union suit. This, literally, is your insulation while you are in the suit. However, you'll need it once the flight is over. Shall I put it on? Yes, put it on under your jumpsuit. Plansky stripped down to his boxer shorts and stepped into the suit. Feels snug, he said as he moved around inside. Yes, that piece of clothing takes the place of the equivalent of three winter coats. Now you'll be fitted into the self-containing unit, similar to the ones used by our astronauts. I must stress this next fact. When you have arrived at your destination, you will get out of this suit at once. The insulation will keep you warm to an extent, but get out of the unit. If you don't, you will be swept back into the currents, into this complex. And should you get out of the suit during the course of the flight, you will be killed instantly. Do you understand what I have told you? I understand what I have to do, but I don't understand the scientific principles, said Polanski as he laced his boots. You have no procedural questions? No, I don't. Then what are you to do? Repeat your instructions to me. "'I am not to get out of the suit till I arrive at my destination, wherever that is. "'Then I am to get out of the suit as soon as possible.' "'Very good,' said Dr. Hudson as he headed for a closet to his right. "'Inside on a padded hanger was a closely stitched bulky suit. "'He lifted it from the hanger and carried it over to Polanski. "'Now you'll have to reattach the helmet to the suit at your destination, Camp David.' "'Camp David? What are you, crazy, Hudson?' You can't drop me in Camp David. The Secret Service would be all over me in a second. This is crazy. You don't understand. Then I just won't step inside the device. If you don't go inside that device or you try to escape, Richards has a standing order to shoot you dead. Then it looks like I'm going to Camp David. How do I get through security? Tell me. I'll get into that in a minute. First, let's go over the logistics of this suit. You should reseal the suit as if you were going back inside of it. Is that clear? Do you want me to repeat it? No, that won't be necessary. This suit was crafted to your exact dimensions. The suit seemed to possess a separate entity of its own as Polanski ran his fingers over the outside stitching. The fabric was smooth, but there were large wrinkles in the suit because it wasn't pressurized had a metal collar that snapped together at the top of an outside zipper, which covered many underlying zippers that ran in various directions. Boots, like the gloves, were attached to the suit itself, which gave the distinct impression that someone was already standing inside the suit. What is this, the air supply? He felt the backpack-like hump on the back of the suit. That is partially correct. There is a power unit inside the protrusion. I will discuss those functions once we get the suit on. "'I am putting the note right in this pouch,' said Hudson as he unzipped one of the pouches below the pack. Hudson stretched the suit out on the table and unsnapped the metal collar. Quickly, he unzipped the front of the suit and scurried around to the boots. "'It's all set. Crawl in,' he said as he held the boot with his hands. Plansky edged his way into the bulky suit until he could feel his feet fit snugly into the massive boots. "'Now what?' he asked as he lay on his back. "'Are your arms in?' "'Yes, I can feel the inside of the gloves,' he said as he wiggled the fingers of the large gloves. "'Now we must secure you,' said Hudson as he carefully zipped the inner layers and finally sealed the outside of the suit. He pulled up the airtight zipper with the collar and snapped it shut. Plansky looked as if he were being mummified as he lay on the table with his black beard sticking out of the side of the metal opening. Hudson grabbed him by the boots and swung him around. He pulled his shoulders forward as Polanski sat upright. "'You will find that there's not much room for mobility,' said Hudson as he raised his brows. "'But then again, there's no need for it. A traveler in time is doing just that. No mobility on his part is required. Any questions?' "'What about the power pack?' "'Yes. Le- well, let me get your helmet on first, said Hudson as he returned to the closet and retrieved the helmet from the top shelf.' Its golden visor covered virtually the front of the helmet, and a two-inch aluminum band surrounded it. The rest of the helmet resembled a plastic surface, but in reality was heat-resistant and totally impenetrable, according to Hudson. Above the visor, emblazoned across the white surface, was that ubiquitous symbol of the red light district. The only other feature on the helmet were the two chrome discs near the ears which housed the hearing apparatus of the suit. The visor is removable, but do not attempt to remove it. This helmet is secured by the thread in the collar. It is turned around once and then snaps into place. The only way to jettison the lock is to push the blue button on your control panel. I will show you how it works, said Hudson as he lifted the helmet over Plansky's head and screwed it into position. Push the blue button, he said as he nodded. Plansky pushed the blue button and the helmet popped out of the lock. Hudson easily unscrewed it. When do I... You will remove this helmet once you have materialized at Camp David, and not until that time, said Hudson, as he held the helmet under his armpit. Once you've gotten out of the suit, it is absolutely essential that you attach the helmet back to the suit. Then the suit will return in one piece. What about communications? You can easily see the earphones on either side. You'll be able to hear our broadcast until the blackout zone. What? Simply put, an added velocity, an increase in pressure where our signals are delayed and vice versa. Okay, doctor, I have no idea what you're talking about. Blackout zone. Remember that, Polanski, he said as he squinted. Hudson laughed as he began to explain the rest of the instrumentation in the helmet. Your microphone is below the visor. Actually, there are two microphones, one on either side. They are connected to a transmitter in the backpack of the suit. Also, impulses are fed to the audio portion of the tape inside. Is a scanning unit. There are four lenses embedded in the helmet, and they are connected to the taping unit. They are activated by the red button on your wrist panel. How long does a tape last? Ten hours. It should be near dawn when you arrive. Next to the radio is a map of the area and arrival in time and path of the President's helicopter. If I am 100% accurate, you should have roughly two hours, hopefully less, to get to the open area where his helicopter will land. That time will be exactly 7.30. Join us next time for another exciting episode of The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton, Theatre of the Words.